Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to historian and journalist Christine Rosen about how American religious leaders, in partnership with philanthropy, helped grow the American eugenics movement in the first part of the 20th century. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on February 10th, 2022 in sunny, uh, beautiful tourist swamped Phoenix, Arizona. And I can't think of a few better ways of spending this beautiful day than by talking to someone as intelligent and accomplished as Christine Rosen. Uh, Christine is senior writer at Commentary Magazine, fellow of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia, and senior editor at The New Atlantis. Uh, Christine holds a PhD in history from Emory University. Her writing has appeared in our most prestigious periodicals from the New York Times Magazine to the Washington Post, the MIT Technology Review to the New England Journal of Medicine, often covering the science slash bioethics slash technology beat. And she is the author of several books, including My Fundamentalist Education and a forthcoming volume titled The Extinction of Experience. I am particularly pleased to speak with Christine because her 2004 book, Preaching Eugenics, Religious Leaders and the American Eugenics Movement was very important in shaping my own views on charity versus philanthropy, on the rhetorical uses and misuses to which science is often put, and on the dark side of American progressivism. So we're going to focus our talk today on that book, which I could not more highly recommend, and on what we should learn from it. Welcome, Christine Rosen. Thanks so much for having me. It is our pleasure. Uh, Thanks for going back into the mists of time. Uh, to the early 2000s, when you must have been working on this book, if not earlier, uh, and trying to remember what you had to say. I'm I'm sure you've revisited it often since then, but I also know that's difficult to do. Um, Maybe we could just start uh, by having you talk to us a little bit just about the history of eugenics in America. I don't think it's something even the highly intelligent listeners of this podcast necessarily know a lot about. Just a little thumbnail on, you know, what was the big idea behind eugenics? When did the movement become popular? Uh, maybe who like who were two or three of its central proponents to start sure. there? Um, you know, it's funny. I think I came to the subject of eugenics the way a lot of Americans uh, do who study history, which is with surprise, because it's not something I ever learned about in my regular history books as a kid or even as a college student. You know, men, it was mentioned once or twice, almost always in the context of Nazi Germany and the practice of eugenics as being something that the Nazis embraced. And so, as a grad student, I started exploring late 19th, early 20th century race theory and you know the, the ways in which uh, scientists were trying to justify racial hierarchies and, and obviously uh, often very pernicious laws in this country. So eugenics actually started, uh, Charles Darwin's cousin, a British scientist named Francis Galton, uh, coined the term meaning good in birth. Um, and the idea was that you could improve the human race through better breeding. So just in the same way that, that you might cultivate plants to have the healthiest and strongest plants flourish, or maybe breed racehorses for speed and agility, 
this could be applied to humans. Now, we now know with the benefit of hindsight and, and many decades of genetic science that this is not possible. Uh, but at the time, the idea did take hold and um, flourish using things, pretty rudimentary techniques like gathering family histories, trying to study certain traits that might be passed down uh, from generation to generation. So in the United States, there were several, several scientists who, who embraced this beginning really in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot. Uh, Charles Davenport is the name that most people end up coming across. He established something called the Eugenics Record Office and was one of the more outspoken um, scientists who pursued eugenics. Uh, but the, these ideas were in the air, even if they weren't called eugenics. And by that, I mean, people were concerned about transformations in society, and they wanted to find solutions to the problems they saw. They saw problems of poverty. They saw what they felt to be overcrowding in cities, new waves of immigrants coming from parts of the world with which they were unfamiliar. And a general sense that, that society was under siege from major problems that didn't have individual solutions and that our old ways of fixing these problems, our old ways of alleviating poverty or health problems weren't working. So there was a real sense of urgency across the land, particularly for those who worked in churches and in charities and philanthropies to find solutions. And so eugenics came on the scene right around that time, and, and much of it should be looked at as an outgrowth of some of the existing efforts at charities and corrections work, for example, that were already um, institutionalized and ongoing. Yeah, what you really, obviously, your book focuses on and points out is that this was not something happening outside the bounds of American religious institutions, but very much within those institutions and being promoted by um, many people associated with those institutions. Um, was it just sort of the promise that eugenics held out for um, providing real solutions to old problems like poverty that attracted American religious leaders to eugenics, or or was it something else? Well, there were two things at work. I think there was this, this effort to create some form of scientific charity, if you will, which which is a phrase that pops up here and there in the papers of these charities and corrections meetings. A better way to, to provide charity and to alleviate these problems. But for religious leaders in particular, there was a real sense that their cultural and social power was waning, that it, they were having to give way to professional social science or professional charity uh, workers, and that the, the prestige and the knowledge that was being amassed on the side of secular institutions was in some ways, although it wasn't always expressed this way, it was felt to be competition for what the work that mm -hmm. the churches were doing. So particularly among uh, more progressive-minded and liberal Protestants and, and some Catholics and Jews, but mainly Protestants, Protestants who were enamored of the social gospel, of the idea of transforming uh, life here on earth as part of their Christian mission, this was a felt sense of, well, we either need to embrace this these new ideas and, and be part of this progressive movement forward, which will improve everything, or we're going to be left behind. And I think that, um, particularly in the early years now, the, the tone of the eugenics movement does change as we get into the late teens and early 20s, and we can talk about that. But at the beginning, it was seen as this amazing tool with which a liberal and particularly liberal progressives who had already sort of embraced ideas around the social gospel uh, could 
make sense of. This, this, this sounded like what they wanted to do and it sounded scientific to them. It seemed like this, this much more sophisticated way of tackling social problems that they had long seen to be in their purview. And of course, this is a time when, as you say, this is mainly a Protestant thing, not entirely, but mainly and uh, mainly embraced by more liberal or progressive um, aspects or branches of, of, of the Protestant sort of world. Um, and it's a time, of course, when they are the ascent, that is the ascent, they, those are the religious institutions in America. Uh, were there critics even early on from within um, the Christian and Jewish uh, worlds that had some premonition and could see ahead uh, to what where this might lead? Yes, there were. I mean, at the very in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, I did not uncover a ton of critics. The the, the strongest and most uh, vigorous critics emerged a little later, you know, in the late nineteen teens, early nineteen twenties. But they, the ones who I did come across, tended to be fundamentalist Christians, and by that I mean the, the, they did not stray from literal interpretations of scripture. They were uh, generally suspicious of, of broad institutionalized efforts at social work and charity. They, they felt that, you know, church-based, uh, smaller uh, community efforts were what were appropriate. And um, what was really interesting was to read their discussions of why these large-scale movements, eugenics in particular, were not respecting what what the Bible said was their mission. So their idea was you are taking, you know, it's not our job to do this. And the dangers as they began to emerge uh, were focused more, and particularly for Catholic critics of, of eugenics and some of the eugenic sterilization laws that came later, but also for fundamentalist Protestants, um, a, a sense that uh, the new sciences that were emerging were for them also a threat to a lot of their teaching. So this should be seen within the context of this push and pull between faith and science at that time, which I have to add was not as dramatic <laughs> as we sometimes <laughs> now in retrospect believe it to be. Right. Yes, the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1927 was, it was a dramatic cultural moment, but there had been a more cooperation than conflict in, in these decades. But for fundamentalists and for, and for um, very text-oriented uh, sects of Protestantism, this was greeted with suspicion in the same way that the social gospel message was often greeted with suspicion. What about Catholics? Was there, um, even early on, um, more of a sense among uh, uh, Catholic priests and religious in particular, maybe lay commentators, that um, that in some ways sort of the brokenness of humanity is, is a gift we're supposed to enter into and, and you know, not try to solve forever, but instead it's an opportunity, you know, for, for grace, for salvation. Is that, is that those sorts of conversations come up during this time with respect to eugenics? Yes, there were, you know, in, in some of the more uh, technical theological journals where, are the, where a lot of these arguments played out, um, they would have discussions about things like sterilization for mental illness. Uh, again, this is priest pre any eugenic sterilization laws. Like, so there, there had been ongoing conversations about, well, it, theologically, how do we approach something like uh, sterilization? Or how do we approach you know, so-called feeble-mindedness? And there was always a sense, um, at least among um, many of the Catholic, uh, traditional Catholic uh, theologians that I came across, that this was something that had to be understood, first and foremost, with humility, and that science was not to be assumed to have better answers to these questions 
than the faith. And because that was the starting point, not a suspicion of science necessarily, right. but an understanding that, you know, we need to take this on board and look at it from our faith tradition and our faith perspective before we just uh, go ahead barreling forward with, with new rules about marriage, for example. So the sacramental nature of much Catholic teaching really did protect them from getting caught up in these sort of fad-like waves of enthusiasm because eugenics folks and, and the reformers who embraced eugenics wanted to change a lot of traditional institutions that were, again, under the purview of the Catholic Church, marriage being the most prominent, but also, you know, questions about uh, uh, being able to bear children. And, right. and later, contraception came into the mix. So, yes, right. I think that's actually, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't necessarily even something they realized at the time, but by following their faith tradition and asking questions through that lens, it did in, in a weird way prevent them from becoming, from succumbing to some of the more extreme ideas that were prevalent at the time. One of the things really stood out to me in reading your book when I was rereading it recently was you know, the advocates, almost all the advocates of eugenics, Herbert Spencer, Francis Galton, whom you already mentioned, Darwin's cousin, uh, Margaret Sanger were very self-consciously outspoken critics of charity. Like charity is a real evil to yeah. them. And they attack it uh, very much head on. Um, why did they hate? What, what made them hate charity so much? So it was, it was interesting, right? Because you would think, oh, they, that they would see allies and activists who wanted to change the world in, in, just like they did. But in fact, the eugenics arguments that they brought to the table uh, they had, and this is where it might be useful to understand that, well, positive eugenics versus negative eugenics. So mm. there was a group of people who believed in what was called positive eugenics. And that was the idea that you should encourage the healthiest, best, the so-called best people to have as many kids as possible, right? So you want to have this, by the 1920s, this meant that at state fairs, you would have fitter family contests and all kinds <laughs> of, you know, the idea being good people should have lots of babies because that's going to be better for all of society because they will produce and raise good, healthy children, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's positive eugenics. But, but human nature being what it is, a lot more effort went into what was called negative eugenics. And this was the idea that the real problem wasn't that we aren't having enough good people reproduce. It's that too many of the bad people are reproducing. And by bad people, they had all kinds of pseudoscientific um rankings, you know, they, there was the feeble-minded being the most common term that was thrown about. So the idea of negative eugenics, which was the form embraced by people like Sanger and others, was that too many people who are feeble-minded are having too many kids, so we have to stop them. And charity, in their mind, encouraged that. By giving people housing and food and money, it mm -hmm. actually gave them a, a, an ability to be comfortable enough to continue to produce children. And even if these became people who were productive members of society, their germplasm, as it was then called, their <laughs> feeble-minded traits would be passed on to their offspring. So what they, what again, this took, took to the, the charitable organizations, this argument that what you're doing is unscientific. We, and, and you'd see these, I mean, in retrospect, these kind of shocking ways of comparing what was going on, but you know, they would go to charity meetings and say, I mean, you wouldn't breed a weak horse with this. You, you're, it's like right. breeding animals. How would you let them do this? This is so bad. But that's actually what they thought. They thought, again, to improve the whole human race, which was their goal, a pot, what they saw as a positive goal, charity was undermining that by keeping alive, basically, generations of people who should otherwise not be born. Uh, I think Galton didn't even sort of put forward sort of the trade, like, hey, we'll, you know, we'll give you charity, but... 
you have to give up your right to reproduce, like charity yeah. for fertilization <laughs> trade. There were a lot of evil bargains made and <laughs> suggested mm. in the in the movement. Yes. How does uh, philanthropy enter this picture? Uh, then, who are the? Key? You already mentioned the eugenics record office, but that was um, and Charles Davenport. But that was funded by philanthropy, and and philanthropy really was behind a lot of this, was it not? The early philanthropic institutions. Oh, absolutely. And and some of the names that even Americans today would recognize, you know, that are carved into many buildings, Rockefeller money funded eugenics, um, Carnegie millions uh, funded this money. Uh, the, the eugenics record office was money that was uh, given by Mrs. Harriman, E.H. Harriman, who was the widow of a railroad, railroad magnate, whose own daughter, Mary, had been a eugenics record office worker, like a volunteer as a college student and got to know Charles Davenport. And, and she married the younger, the daughter was, was a very activist, uh, progressive, you know, sort of a young activist who wanted to change the world. And so she went to her mom and introduced her to, to uh, Davenport and they hit it off. And, and Harriman spent what her initial, I, I believe her initial offering was tantamount to about half a million dollars. I mean, a lot of money at the time. Um, to support Charles Davenport establishing a record office so that he could send out all of these college ed, college age women out into the hinterland, you know, into the pine branches of New Jersey, the, the all these the, all these areas of of uh, the country, and have them collect histories of feeble minded families to bring back to him that he could then study to to create some sort of uh, record of of eugenic degeneration in the country. So. Uh, and it wasn't just direct funds. A lot of the uh, most elite colleges and universities at the time, uh, which, which of course, also were funded by very wealthy families, had courses in eugenics for students to take. Mm -hmm. All you know, many Ivy League institutions, lots of the big state universities. There was money that was given to support state and state-run institutions, which then embraced eugenic sterilization laws later. So. Anywhere a liberal-minded or self-described progressive um, philanthropist was, uh, had his or her name, mainly his in this era, but still anywhere that money went, it likely touched on eugenics in these years. Cause this was the cutting edge of, of, so of scientific philanthropy. This was where all the smart liberal people wanted to be and where they wanted to put their money. Christine Rosen, uh, we'll be right back and continue talking about, um, uh, eugenics, science, religion, and philanthropy in America. Right back. Okay, time for a little timeout, a little practicality uh, with my friend and colleague, Dan Falta. How are you, Dan? I'm doing great, Jeremy. It's great to be with you today. Dan uh, lives in Fishers, Indiana, beautiful Fishers, Indiana, on the northeast side of Indianapolis, of course, my home state. Um, although, didn't you go to Purdue? Is that, do I have that right? I, I did, and I know that could be a, a little bit of a conflict <laughs> between you and I, but yeah, I, I think we could just put it past us for, for today. You have so many, su such uh, um heavy basketball bragging rights over uh, Indiana uh, right now that I really can't say anything. So we'll just sort of leave that off to a side like you recommend. Um, Dan is a managing consultant for us and leads our capital campaigns consulting group. So we're going to talk a little bit about capital campaigns and this practicality. And, and because we only have a few minutes, we're going to 
zero in on this thing that if you have ever done a capital campaign or your your school or your church or your organization is considering a capital campaign, you've probably heard the term feasibility study, that you need to do a feasibility study. Dan, what the heck is a feasibility study and why do you need it? Well, great question, Jeremy. And uh, if you're ever contemplating a campaign or you want to go into a capital campaign or any type of campaign at all, um, what a feasibility study does is it helps you prepare for that campaign and and really um, take you through a process that is going to help you manage success for your campaign. So none of us want to fail in a campaign, right? And we know um, if we did fail, mm-hmm. uh, there could there could be several things that uh, would become of that. And right. so, what a feasibility study does is 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 basically um, helps you be successful in your campaign. So how does it do that? Like, what are the key deliverables? What do you get out of a feasibility study that kind of offers this insurance against failure that you're talking about? Sure. You first, first you're creating a case for support. Um, and you want to use that. That's, that's fundraising lingo, but basically it's a, it's, it's a document. It's a uh, multi-page document that provides, um, what you want to raise money for, why it's important, mm-hmm. and why it's important for other people to support uh, this fundraising campaign. And so um, you create this document to put in front of donors uh, when you're going through a feasibility study. So you select uh, a certain number of donors you want to interview. And these donors might be board members. They may be your your top-level donors, you know, key stakeholders. And, you know, anywhere from 20 to 50 mm-hmm. um, donors you mm-hmm. want to interview. And so uh, through these interviews, and, and, and it might be anywhere from 12 to 20 questions that you're asking them mm-hmm. um, in these interviews, you will, you will share ahead of time this case for support. Okay. And so you're, you're testing their reaction to uh, that document and, you know, the reason for this campaign. And these answers from the the interviews will help uh, tell you, is it feasible to do this campaign? Are people going to support it? Uh, What do they think of it? What are some of the key features of that uh, case for support that they like or they dislike? Um, What are some important messaging points uh, that you can glean from those interviews that will help, you know, when you actually... Um, initiate the campaign. So it's all the pre-campaign work um, that, that's done in the feasibility study. Um, as at the end, you know, the, you, you know, usually it's a third party that's con- uh, conducting the feasibility study. And so at the end of these interviews, uh, that consultant would um, really synthesize the answers, uh, list out the key findings from those feasibility from those questions. And then provide recommendations as a final report. So I've heard it said it's, it's like in a way you're sort of only partially baking the cake, so to speak, and you're inviting in some of the key people you think could be big supporters of this capital campaign or, or historically have been um, key supporters of your organization. You're kind of inviting them into the process of of baking the cake, so to speak. Is, is that a good way to put it? It's a terrible metaphor. Maybe, that's but. a great way. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it, and it, it's a good way to engage. 
your key stakeholders. And it's a real high level form of cultivation. Mm -hmm. So not only are you getting this good information from these, from these interviews, but you're also moving donors along the, the donor continuum towards ultimately making a gift. And that's what you want. Is there, are there misconceptions out there about feasibility studies, uh, um, things that people get wrong about what they're, what they're supposed to do or how they work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and one of the misconceptions is that you don't need to do a feasibility study. And <laughs> yeah, I, we hear that sometimes. You know, I, it, yeah, we know that's not right. But it, and you know, I've worked in the for-profit sector for twenty-five plus years, where I've kind of run. I've I've had feasibility studies done for campaigns, uh, for various uh, reasons, and uh, so I've seen the the benefit firsthand of having one and not having one. And so um, I've never been part of a campaign over those years where it does not make sense to do a feasibility study because you just want to you just want to guarantee success as much as possible. Yeah. And, and that that planning helps you do so. Um, you know, another misconception about feasibility studies is that it, the only thing it's good for is just telling you how much you can raise money right. uh, for a campaign. And that while that is true, that's one of the key outcomes that, that you want to you want to find out is, OK, is this is, is this campaign feasible? Can we raise the money mm -hmm. um, and what would donors give? But but it also does so many other things. Um, it, it like I said earlier, it cultivates the donors. It cultivates relationships. Um, it helps your own development department. Um, go through a process that is really helpful for the future, mm -hmm. not only for the organization, but for for individuals, you know, for professionals in the in the development business. Um, so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of positive outcome that comes uh, from a feasibility study other than just the you know, telling you that what you can raise. But you won't get those outcomes if you don't do the study that that's. That, that's a key finding of this interview. It turns out <laughs> to get the positive benefits of a feasibility study, you have to do a feasibility study. Good point. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And it does, it's an investment of, of time and money, uh, but in the long run, it's worth it. And if you're trying to raise millions of dollars, which you're trying to do with a capital campaign, typically, I mean, what's, what's another, whatever it is, $50,000, $75,000 to, to really get it right. Dan, thanks so much for sharing. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. All right, we are back with Christine Rosen, Senior Editor at The New Atlantis, Fellow of the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia, and Senior Writer at Commentary Magazine, talking about her book, Preaching Eugenics. Uh, religious leaders and the American eugenics movement. Uh, and we're starting to get into the role of philanthropy in all of this. Uh, do you know or remember when, uh, when, let's put it this way, when does the movement begin to sort of lose steam and, and why? And then how does philanthropy intersect with that, if at all? Well, the movement's heydays really were late 19-teens and throughout the 20s. What happened, um, beginning in the, well, really began in the mid-20s, but it started to sort of reach public consciousness a little bit later, is that genetic science started to improve. We started to 
learn more about how genes actually work, uh, what is and isn't heritable. Um, and the the genetic scientists who had some of whom had flirted or at least you know lent their imprimatur to eugenics off and on over the years started distancing themselves <laughs> from eugenics. Uh, so there was a, there was an aspect of the, we're the real scientists, the geneticists saying what they're doing is a little kooky and not really very scientific. So that was one part of it. Another part of it, quite frankly, was that eugenics, and this, this will sound um, strange to some people, at that, by the time eugenics was mainstreamed in the 20s, it, it wasn't considered radical even among progressives. What was considered radical and, and was actively pursued as, as a joint project um, was the birth control movement. And Margaret right. Sanger really aggressively trying to attach herself to the eugenics movement and its, its at the time, its prestige. And so for a lot of, um, uh, this is a point at which you do see some, some of the philanthropy pulling back a little bit. They do not want to be associated with something as controversial at the time as contraception. Um, this is definitely when the eugenics movement lost some of its, even some of its more liberal Protestant and all of its Catholic adherents, you know, the ones who'd put their name on letterhead saying, oh, yeah, we support this as a matter of, you know, improving the humorous. So you, that, that was actually, those combined forces um, did a lot more damage to the movement long before you start to hear about what's planned for and going on in Europe in the 30s. So right. um, it, that, that timeline is important for Americans to remember because the other thing that always uh, strikes people as astonishing and shouldn't be because we should know our own history better is that we passed eugenic sterilization laws in this country decades before they ever did it in Nazi Germany. We did it here first. Uh, the Nazis uh, admired the work that eugenicists did in this country and had some of them over to Germany to talk to them about this project. So the idea that we are somehow that we were different in terms of the, the, the faddish nature of these ideas and the embrace of them uncritically. No, I mean, it did happen here. It happened here and we were doing it. And that legacy is something that, quite honestly, a lot of states in this, in this country would sterilize many of their citizens without their consent and certainly without even telling them what they were doing to them, haven't really acknowledged. I mean, the state of Virginia is an exception. California really needs to, to do more about this. Yeah. Um, so there, there's still a lot of hidden history here that, that needs uh, to see some sunlight. It, yes, one would think that in, in an age like ours, it would be picked up with some relish, but perhaps mm -hmm. because the movement is associated with progressivism rather than sort yes. of radical right wing yes. uh, yeah, nuttiness, uh, it's not. Uh, it, wasn't Indiana the first state to have yes. forced sterilization laws in yes, the book? Yes, it was. Yep. Yeah. Is there, has there been any official apology from them? Or North Carolina, I think, was early too. I may Carolina, be wrong. I don't know. So I know Virginia has actually done some, mainly because that's where the Buck, Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court case that upheld mm -hmm. involuntary sterilization, Carrie Buck, that, that all played out in, in Virginia. And they, they have done a, a really um, commendable work excavating and publicizing that history. But California probably sterilized more people than anyone else. New York did a lot of really too. So the, yeah, many, many states. And again, it's all buried in their state institutional records. And it, there it will sit until historians continue to piece, piece this together and tell that story. Well, speaking of being buried in institutional records, that, that leads us to ask about philanthropic institutions. You know, the Carnegie Foundation still around, Rockefeller still around, mm -hmm. Russell Sage Foundation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Russell Sage is still around, actually. Um, and there are others. Has there, what's, uh, either before your book came out or after your book came out, um, 
has there has there been any sort of official acknowledgement of their role in this movement and and expressions of regret and that sort of thing? Oh no! And in fact, I think it was only <laughs> recently that Planned Parenthood finally said something to the effect of, "Yes, well, Margaret Sanger had a few bad ideas." Oh, that cookie, mm. Margaret! But it was it literally was done in the spirit of, "Oh yes, well, you know, you know, everybody thought that way then." And they're not wrong that lots of people thought right. that way, but there were also a lot of people who understood that what was happening was morally wrong and spoke out. Right. So I don't, right. the, the philanthrop- philanthropic institutions in particular are interesting to me because I think in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, you did see a real um, concern about how a lot of these uh, uh, philanthropies were going overseas and sterilizing people for, for so, I mean, they called it population control, but there was a real eugenic. Yeah to the messaging there. And that really angered people here at home. But there really wasn't a reckoning, a full reckoning of these in these places with what they're, and again, for some of them, it's their founding members, it's the founding money. Um, the Museum of Natural History actually was, was a place where there was a lot of, uh, they had eugenics conferences there and a lot of money uh, that, was, that was given to that institution back in the day it was also uh, given by people who you know, supported eugenics. I think the problem is that it was, it's one of those parts of our past that we want to forget, so we do. And I think for, for philanthropists, particularly, at, like you said earlier, at this moment where they're really doing a, a, a reckoning, as they call it, they should make that reckoning a full reckoning and, and really look at their archives and see what was going on and what their, what their money was supporting and the people it harmed. Yeah, it must, part of the reason why that hasn't happened has to be that uh, it just doesn't fit the narrative of why bad things happened in the past mm-hmm. <laughs> that is, have been embraced by by uh, sort of elite institutions and well, elite. And, and elite not, sorry to interrupt, but the but the the progressive project in general is still something that many of these philanthropies support. So to chip right. away at their own base uh, project is is could be dangerous because it's you know you you start pulling on that thread in the sweater and. The whole thing can mm-hmm. unravel. So I, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's a very important point. It would be nice if we, if there were um, some pressure put on them, though. And I, other than, um, you know, uh, the work of uh, our friend Bill Chambra, uh, books like yours, and a couple of others, it, I, I'm sure they just don't feel any real pressure to to do anything. Right. Well, there's no public, like you said, the, the messaging is wrong, and the <laughs> for them. <laughs> um, let's back up a little bit. Um, was I'm curious. Was eugenics was it popular? Was it popular only among again elite figures and elite institutions, even elite religious you know institutions and figures, or did it have like broad mainstream public support among the American people? It did for a while, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in the twenties, and you see it in pop culture. There were movies that had. Uh, you know, eugenics themes. There was a whole movie about, you know, a woman who might, who's married someone and it turned out, oh my goodness, he was hiding secret feeble-mindedness. I mean, it sounds, it was a ridiculous uh, plot, although less ridiculous than some of the made-for-TV movies I've seen. So perhaps not, but yes. And and you also found it, I found a lot of examples of it in the mainstream magazine. Um, you know, the, the sort of, the general interest magazines would have uh, articles targeted particularly at women uh, and ch- women of childbearing age heard a lot of these things, kind of advice and tips, not only on how to choose a husband, but you should look into his family and and uh, lots of marriage advice. Well, what what sounded like marriage advice, but in fact was eugenic advice because it was all about mm. how to have uh, to avoid feeble mindedness. 
Um, and, and certainly, as I said earlier, they were teaching it in, in universities. But, it, you know, at state fairs in the middle of nowhere, you would have these better baby contests. And there are people who still sometimes uh, I was I worked with PBS on a, on a, a documentary about uh, part of the eugenics movement. And one of the producers told me she, she gets these emails from people who were cleaning out their grandparents' attic in you know Iowa and found these trophies and these medals and they were sort right. of horrified. But this was, <laughs> this was it, you know, it was like you had raised a prize steer. You had the prize family and you got a medal for it. And they would, you were, uh, you could go into a tent and you could get a physical exam by a eugenics worker. And, you know, it, at the, <laughs> the at the international you know expositions and fairs, there was always a eugenics booth. So it was actually mainstream for, mm. for you know at least a decade, if not longer. Really extraordinary. I, I don't think people know this history at all, yeah. uh, except through the things they find in the attics of their Iowa grandparents. Exactly. I suppose there were even eugenics sermon contests. I remember you talk about that in your book. Yes, this was, uh, and I have to tip my hat to uh, Daniel Kevlis, who wrote a wonderful survey of the American and the British eugenics movement back in the 80s. And he, he mentions these in passing. He mentions the sermon contest. And that just, for me, it really piqued my interest. So when I was at the archives of the American Philosophical Society Library in uh, Philadelphia for a couple of months researching, I got the box of sermons. It's literally a huge box of sermons that were submitted, again, from from small town ministers, you know, mainly Protestant, um, one or two Catholic uh, writers, uh, and one or two Jewish, uh, liberal Jewish, reformed Jewish rabbis. Mm -hmm. But it was fascinating to read because there was a contest that was sponsored by the American Eugenics Society. And one of the requirements was that to enter the contest, you had to give this sermon to your congregation. So they just didn't write a paper and turn it in and try to win a prize. They they gave this sermon and they would they would write these glowing front page letters saying, you know, this was so popular. I gave this sermon three times in the same week. I mean, it, it, this, again, to speak to the kind of mm-hmm. trickle down and popular effect of these ideas, uh, they were popular enough that, that your everyday minister was preaching about it from his pulpit. <laughs> Wasn't there one, I, I'm going from memory here, but it may have been from one of these sermons or maybe it's somebody else's writings or, you know, if Jesus were alive today, he'd be a eugenicist. <laughs> yes, that actually was a common theme in many of the sermons. And there was uh, the American Eugenics Society uh, hired sort of later in its in its existence, uh, for lack of a better term, what was a sort of dodgy PR guy named Albert Wiggum. And Wiggum, <laughs> Wiggum wanted, wrote these books where he would rewrite the Ten Commandments as eugenic commandments. I mean, he, he was right. he really, he actually knew a lot <laughs> about the Bible and about faith, but, but he really wanted to turn, he argued also that eugenics should become our new religion. He said it explicitly, wrote about it. Um, that was That was the idea. Extraordinary. I, I want to ask you, those are sort of the f- weird, funny, kind of troubling things, but not as troubling as the things I'm going to bring up now and that maybe you can talk to us about a little bit when we just sort of should make aware, people aware of some of the more radical proposals made by eugenics advocates. I've got, I got two to start you off here with, Christine. Uh, A.O. Wright, the Reverend A.O. Wright, he was secretary of the Wisconsin State Board of Charities, said that the, quote, defective classes should be quarantined in state-sponsored colonies. Mm-hmm. And that was one serious idea put out there. And then John Glenn, not the astronaut, I hasten to add, <laughs> uh, but director of the Russell Sage Foundation, and this is your words, quote, endorsed state-sponsored segregation of feeble-minded men and women. Um, are those two of the more radical proposals or did it get, did it get worse from there? 
So those were actually the not th those were on the less radical end of the spectrum, <laughs> and, and a lot of those again growing out of the charities and corrections movements and and sort of social work uh, era, uh, particularly in the early 20th century. They, there were homes; they were called homes for the feeble-minded. This is where people would take their children or relatives who they couldn't care for anymore themselves, or, or people who had run-ins with the law and and uh, were obviously not uh, criminals, but couldn't be trusted to care for themselves or, or live safely at home. And so they would they would be turned over to the state and become wards of the state in these institutions. And once there, it really did depend on who ran the institution. So there were some of these institutional heads who were enthusiastic eugenicists, and they would just sterilize uh, the women um, who came through mm -hmm. and tell them that they were getting an appendectomy, for example, or just having a minor surgery. And so many of these women, when they finally left these institutions, if they did leave them, would go home and get married and wonder why they could never have children. Um, so mm. th so they were at a state institutional level, uh, each institution did have a lot of purview in terms of how it, it, it segregated what they called the so-called people-minded. And then at the state level, you also saw legislatures passing both um, Efforts for what were called early on marriage health certificates, where people had to prove their their family health to get married. That was mm. popular for a little while, but then later, uh, in the in the teens and twenties, you saw sterilization laws. So, so as you said, Indiana, but other states passing laws uh, allowing for the lead, for the compulsory sterilization of the so-called feeble-minded and the definitional uh, <laughs> the distinctions and definition of what was and wasn't feeble-minded were vast. So this could be someone who'd who was annoying to their parents or, or just, you know, uh, someone who really was, you know, probably cognitively challenged. But in any case, they were called, these were so-called dysgenic people who needed to not reproduce. And so they were sterilized against their will uh, often. You've already touched a little bit on how the Nazis did admire uh, some of what they saw happening in, in, in the United States with respect to forced sterilization, et cetera. Um, of course, they pick up on this and use uh, give it this racial slash ethnic twist. Were there were any of the progressive or other uh, proponents of eugenics in America thinking along those lines? You, we keep touching on feeble mindedness. It was essentially around like a more fit human being being produced. But was there a um, any sort of racial or ethnic cast to the eugenics movement here? Oh yes, <laughs> uh, and you you find it. I figured um, <laughs> that was the answer. <laughs> well, you and you see this in, in the one bit of our history that Americans do actually tend to know about, even if they don't understand the eugenic impulses that created. And that was the um, Immigration Restriction Act in the 1920s, passed by Congress. We're targeting quotas on the entry into the U.S. of immigrants from uh, Southern and Eastern Europe. These were people. These are, <laughs> I should say, people. They were my people. My my grandparents, my great grandparents came during that wave, and they were. Uh, they were largely Catholic and Jewish. So that was, there was an effort to, they wanted, this is where the sort of waspy nature of the eugenics movement took hold. They wanted the Mayflower families, right? That was the ideal for them racially. So that anyone who was coming in from, from I mean, they, they, I guess the Irish got kind of grandfathered in, but Southern and Eastern Europeans who were at the time coming to the, to the country in large numbers, um, often staying in cities uh, on the East Coast, crowding the cities, which, which you know, concerned people who, who lived there. So they were definitely one of the targets in the Immigration Restriction Act. Many eugenic, eugenicists, Harry Laughlin uh, testified before Congress and gave his whole eugenic spiel for why we need to limit immigration for eugenic reasons. Um, so that was definitely something that concerned them. Interestingly, and Edward Larson has written a, a remarkable history book about 
eugenics in the South. And in mm-hmm. a weird way, the segregation policies that were in place in the South, um, at, I won't say protective function because that's not right, but because right. the state institutions are racially segregated, um, often you would see higher sterilization rates in white institutions in the South than in the institutions that were for African-Americans. So there's a, there's a fascinating, mm. uh, the way that the history of segregation in the South interplayed with the eugenics movement in the South. He tells that story in a, in a really wonderful way um, if people are interested in learning more about that. It seems obvious, but we might as well state the obvious here that one of the lessons we ought to take from this history is that um, uh, these sort of simple-minded uh, uh, yard sign declarations that we ought to trust the science or follow the science or we <laughs> believe in science, whatever they say, are are, are ridiculous, uh, right? I mean, it's um, this is just one example of a time when the scientific community was all in. Uh, from an allegedly scientific perspective on something that was atrocious. Yes, I I, I, I think my study of this era, whenever I, I saw a lot of people uh, speaking this way, you know, whenever you hear the science, capital T, capital S, mm-hmm. be very, very skeptical. <laughs> and, and yes, I mean, I think that's actually one of the ways in which, particularly when you're talking about activism, if people want the world to change and they claim they want to improve it, and I don't doubt that claim. I mean, I spent a lot of time reading you know, Margaret Sanger's letters and papers and, and those of lots of far more obscure activists in, in this era, they genuinely wanted to make the world a better place. But, mm-hmm. but the, what they lacked in the pursuit of that was humility. And that, I think, for the, for the people who did fight this and who did, you know, eventually, the humility that came from being, for example, a geneticist in the early, uh, era, early days of that uh, discipline, they have humility when they came to the subject, and that was what the eugenicists lacked. Um, so I think that that humility is something we should always have, and science is a process. Science does not have <laughs> special access to the truth. And I think um, I, what I fear going forward, and, and I ended up writing a little conclusion to, the, to, that, to the book, which you know, in retrospect, seems kind of depressing, but I think has been proven correct when we look at some of our new reproductive technologies. And that's that it's not, eugenics wasn't bad just because it was the state wielding its power against citizens. So a lot of Americans go, well, we can't, okay, that was terrible. That was bad, but we don't do that anymore. Eugenics is bad because the idea is that we have the power to manipulate human life in such a way as to forever alter every generation that comes afterwards. And we do have more of that power now. We have power the eugenicists could only have dreamed about. But human nature suggests we still lack the humility to wield it. Do you think there's any chance that um, our experience in the last couple of years um, uh, with COVID and everything that's gone uh, surrounds that? can produce a little bit more humility uh, with respect to um, not only our attempts to manipulate our environments uh, in, in perfectly sort of imperfect ways, but in terms of uh, our sort of regard for cultural regard for science with a capital S. I, I think it does. And I think that's kind of a silver lining to look, I, I, I like institutions. I want them to flourish. I think we, it's always better to rebuild than to destroy but we there there was a real humbling of uh, and an totally understandable lack of trust in particularly in public health institutions over the last few years because there was an effort by the people who controlled those institutions to to assume the worst about the rest of us to assume we would do the wrong thing so tell us one thing that wasn't true and then change the mind 
And there wasn't trust. That's what broke down the trust. It wasn't people refusing to listen to the experts, but the experts lied to the people. And I think whenever you have experts who, who claim to represent the science or public health, li- deliberately lying or obfuscating or politicizing their work, that trust will erode and something new needs to be rebuilt in its stead. And I, I, so in some sense, down the line, I hope it'll make for a more transparent, honest, and rigorous form of public health, particularly in messaging when, when crises erupt. But it, it, it's been a very hard way to learn that lesson for a lot of people. And the politicization of it, actually, because I, you know, having studied eugenics, which was a very politicized form of, of science, we can, we can learn from that, too. We can learn about why that's dangerous, why it's dangerous to jump on the next new thing and declare it the only way to go about doing things. No, it's really not. We, we know from our past experience that, that politicians have to lead and make tough choices. They should certainly uh, consult scientists and they should consult experts. But ultimately, leadership is about making a decision, weighing risks and benefits for everyone. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily going to please the public health experts or the scientists every time. Nor is it the domain of public health experts or scientists. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, uh, Christine Rosen, thank you so much for bringing this um, fascinating but deeply troubling history to light in your book and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Where can people, are are you on uh, Twitter or things like this, Christine? uh, In my other life of studying technology, I am not on social media, I have to say, but I do have have an email address at commentarymagazine.org. See Rosen, C-R-O-S-E-N at commentary.org. People are welcome to email me any questions they might have. Um, And uh, the book's on Amazon. (laughs) It's very expensive because it's got a lot of footnotes, so... It's a great book. It's very readable. Don't be scared by what she just said. <laughs> it's just uh, the depth of scholarship is is present in the footnotes. But yes, it's available on Amazon or I might add, probably not on Amazon, like A Libris or yes. Bookshop. Yes, you or, can get used copies. You can also get a digital copy, which is actually how yeah. most of them sell these days. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Christine. I appreciate it. Thank you.